Night IBS podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Ruby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday Night IBS podcast episode. Today, I am very pleased to welcome two special guests to this month's episode. This month, we're going to be talking to the Food Marble CEO, Angus Short, and to um, Dr. Jay Pashrika. And we've been advertising this a lot over the past couple of weeks. I'm going to be talking to them about some new and interesting data that is helping to look at predictors of response for patients with IBS and SIBO. So it's going to be a very interesting um, discussion today, but first a a few little um, introductions of our guests. Of course, um, many of you know, Dr. Jay Pajrika over the course of his career, he has been credited with more than 30 patents for novel gastrointestinal diagnoses and treatment methods his extensive publications on the enteric nervous system and the gut-brain axis have garnered, garnered global attention, and he practices at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. He's also a professor of innovation management at the John Hopkins Carey School of Business. And um, most of you have heard him speak or know of his work, so we're so pleased to have him joining us. And then also is um, Angus Short. He is the CEO of Food Marble and um, creator of the AIR, which is the world's first handheld hydrogen breath testing device. And so we're excited to talk to both of them. So I guess I want to start a little bit about some history around how this all came to be, Angus. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about why you got into this world of breath testing and GI, a little bit about your background and maybe, you know, why it was personal to you too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Hi, Joanna. Thanks very much, first of all, for having us on on the pod. Um, Yeah, so this actually goes back to 2014 approximately for me. And it's actually an, an issue that my wife was facing, who who was my girlfriend at the time. But uh, mm-hmm. so she had she'd been through a process, and I think it's a process that a lot of people have gone through and experienced, and um, and that's really that journey to IBS, where you know you're 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 you know you're trying different things you know you have a certain kind of set of symptoms um and you know it's very different for different people but for grace you know she had a very very significant pain and bloating all the other kind of typical symptoms you'd see in terms of ibs um she'd gotten mixed messages from different uh clinicians over the years um and but he was starting to get to a point where you know she had to start on some medications the medications frankly were you know, just making, making her feel worse. Um, so in her, her situation, she wasn't getting any better. I just wanted to see what could help. 
and I was actually coming from an engineering background. Um, so I, I just finished a PhD in electrical engineering and I was looking at the research papers because I had access to the research literature from the PhD and, and I saw that, you know, there's a lot of people using this technology of breath analysis to see essentially how are some of these fermentable carbohydrates being absorbed or not, and where that where the, the fermentable carbohydrates are not being fully absorbed and they're being fermented by your gut bacteria, um, mostly in your colon. Uh, this, this, this could lead to a, gener- a buildup of these gases in, in the gut and that could provoke symptoms. And to me, okay, I thought, well, first of all, that's that's interesting. And that's something that, you know, potentially somebody could do to monitor their condition. Um, but I also knew based on what they're actually measuring, that this is something that could be done in a much smaller device that the person could use, potentially with a smartphone app. And so that they, they'd be able to gather much more data on what's actually happening. And so maybe you could move from, you know, people just doing these single snapshots of the testing with with their gastroenterologist to where it's something where they can measure and monitor over time um so so that was kind of you know that that probably came a bit later because initially it was really just i had a prototype and i was using it with grace and she was able to see okay i i can eat this or maybe i can't eat that and and this is just with a very simple prototype and and you know fast forward a number of years we developed the technology to the point where you're getting that level of accuracy and reliability and, and it works really effectively with a smartphone. And so, yes, yeah, so th- that's kind of, that's kind of where it started. And, uh, but it, it was really just coming from that personal perspective of here is a problem that somebody's facing and, you know, there's not really a ton of stuff out there. Right. Right. And in terms of validity of breath testing, I think, you know, even now I hear a lot of different, um, sides of the camps, right? So some believe breath testing is a very valuable uh, diagnostic tool. Others don't think it's very reliable depending upon who's reading the results and how they're interpreting the readings. Um, It may not even be positive when the data or the testing is showing positive. I think, how did you just kind of deal with that in terms of the validation of your product? Yeah. So like breath analysis, you know, it like when we're measuring those gases on the breath, they're certainly there, but the digestive tract is complicated. Is as we all know, it's extremely complicated, and the bacteria are going to be dispersed along, you know, from you know potentially in the small intestine, but like largely in the colon. But the, you know, colon, it is different parts of the colon. People the transit of food through the, like Jay knows much more about this than I do, but the transit of food through the GI tract, vary, the, the, the amount of time it takes varies a lot from person to person. So it's never going to be really straightforward. And, and you know, over, over the years, there's, you know, these different diagnostic criteria have been built around breath testing. And, you know, that's what we're, that's what's done today. And we think that's, that's useful and it's a guide and, and it's, it's, it's an effective test, but really where it can go in the future. That's really what's mm. really interesting to us where, because we see just, there's a huge variation in the amount of these gases that are produced by the people right. using our device. So you can see how challenging it is to say, well, 
if, if you reach 20, you know, there's a rise of 20 parts per million within 90 minutes for, for SIBO, for example, I mean, that's a challenging thing to do because you have all that variation, but it, it is still a useful test. And uh, it, it's kind of like, I don't think we can just ignore that the GI tract is complex and then just, you know, not do testing. I think mm-hmm. that's, that, that's really what, what um, can be frustrating for, for, for me sometimes is, well, if you don't want to test and you don't want to see what's happening, would you prefer to just, you know, prescribe medications based off, you know, gut feel or just some sort of instinct? Like, the, I, I feel like that's not good medicine. Mm-hmm. So that is what has led you now to using breath testing um, as a, pre, a predictor of response, correct? Looking at patients who would respond to, say, prebiotics or dietary therapies, such as the low FODMAP diet, um, or even antibiotics, if they are positive for SIBO. Well, so this is something that, you know, we think is an exciting uh, there's exciting potential to do this in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Jay's group over at Hopkins has gathered some really interesting data uh, to start, you know, supporting this sort of approach. Um, I wouldn't say this is uh, it, this, like, this is this is the potential of technology where you can measure something in the home. Like so, if you're telling the patient take this device away, gather data over a period of time. And then that lets a gastroenterologist review the data. And then there's interesting things we can do in terms of analyzing the data to say, well, you know, this patient actually, um, from, from the data we have, it seems like they would be a good candidate for this. Right, right. Which I think is really interesting. And, and um, Dr. Pajrika, I'd love to, you know, as a practicing gastroenterologist um, and also working with Food Marble on this these studies, um, how do you use breath testing in your patient care? And, you know, what do you think the role of it is in the diagnostic workup of a patient? And then in going further with that, how are you using that to kind of look at, like, like Inga said, patients who would respond well to certain therapies? Oh, you're on mute. Thank you. Uh, first, I want to make sure everybody understands in full disclosure that I'm a consultant for Food Marvel. Um, but having said that, I was attracted to this technology for two reasons. One is its potential for simplifying the standard approach. The standard approach being a lactulose challenge and seeing what kind of hydrogen or other gases are produced. Mm-hmm. Now, this is typically done either in a clinic setting by a technician, patient has to come in and spend a few hours of their time there. Or increasingly, I think it's being ordered at home by, from companies that actually provide mail-in kits. So one of the reasons I was attracted to this technology was, and actually, interestingly, even before uh, Food Marvel came up with this, we had been working on something similar many years before. So I hate to steal your thunder here, Angus, but uh, <laughs> we, we had a prototype device as well, but these guys did it so much better. We said, there's no point reinventing the wheel. Um, uh, so that's one advantage. The But that's just a relatively um, 
simple advantage in terms of it's yes, it's more convenient for patients, but are we really doing anything beyond what's already being done apart from the fact that it's at a different site and the convenience of your home? So this is where I think uh, I'm most excited about. And as Angus said, uh, we certainly think it has the potential, but we don't have the data yet to establish that as a fact. But right. here are some of the potential advantages beyond uh, the simplicity and convenience. One is we know that the lactulose hydrogen breath test is a flawed test. It's the only test we really have apart from bacterial cultures of the small intestine, which is not practical, but it's really right. not a very good test. Some people estimate that it's like tossing a coin in terms of you know being right or wrong. And that may well be true. So how do we actually improve that? One approach is, uh, like some other people are doing, is to add to the repertoire of gases beyond hydrogen. Look at methane, which is now increasingly becoming a standard. And further, some other investigators and companies have started looking at hydrogen sulfide. And there may be other volatiles, as we call them, that may actually turn out to be even more important and more specific. But I do think that a one-time snapshot is not adequate for a condition that is complex. Um, so we know just very simply, the more times you repeat a test for any condition, the greater the likelihood of improving the sensitivity, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's just an additive uh, right. effect on sensitivity. So that's one advantage of a home-based test that you can do it multiple times. You don't have to schedule an appointment and you don't necessarily have to pay for each time, at least not at least the same amount that you would for a clinic-based test. Mm -hmm. The other is to measure it under what we call physiological conditions, right? I mean, no, nobody's ingesting large amounts of lactulose on a daily basis, but they are eating a variety of foods some of which, unbeknownst to them, may be in fact responsible for um, their gas and distension and some of these other symptoms. And this is, of course, the basis of um, the low FODMAP diet. But that's like a sledgehammer, right? It's, it's difficult to sustain that in the long term because it is so heavily restricted. And what a tool like this offers is the potential to personalize your diet in every individual by monitoring the responses to different uh, components. And I may add that the software that Food Marble has is also capable of taking in uh, whatever you want to put in, in terms of what you eat in, uh, as a meal, and can analyze that into fermentable carbs and so on. So it is a useful way for patients potentially to tailor their own diet by having an objective measure, such as the breath gas concentration. So that's a second advantage. The third advantage is what happens, so an argument has been made, and I'm not against that. I am I'm reasonably supportive of that argument. Why bother if a test is so flawed and you suspect bacterial overgrowth or SIBO, why don't you just treat them and treat them with some relatively innocuous methods, antibiotics, and some people use herbals, but let's say antibiotics are the best known way to treat SIBO. Why not just treat them for two weeks and get it over with? 
so-called therapeutic trial. And that has merit, that, uh, that argument has merit, except you run into difficulty when in one of two scenarios. First, patient has a good response initially, but a few weeks later or a few months later, mm-hmm. their symptoms come back. Yes. What do you do? Treat it again, empirically, blindly? And how many times do you do that, right? And the other is, if you don't have a response, you never had a response, how confident are you that this patient does not have bacterial overgrowth? Because, you know, they, they, you may not have caught it. So what I'd like to do is having a tool to test, treat, and retest, right? So how do you treat any condition, right? So if you, if you want to treat a pneumonia or a fever or infection, you follow the temperature. And, and once the temperature goes away, you're pretty good. Um, you have pretty good confidence that the infection has, in fact, been treated, or you do another chest X-ray if you want. Right. So you want to have some objective markers for that, right? It's the same thing as with urinary tract infection. If you can treat it as is often advocated empirically in women, but if it comes back, what do you do? Are you sure the infection was treated? Are you sure it hasn't come back? So you need to have an objective test. And this particular tool has the potential for offering a treat, test, retest paradigm. And that's another, I think, big advantage of tools like that. Now, Food Marvel may not be the only company that's doing it. There may be other methods. There is, in fact, a capsule that you can ingest and that can monitor um, gas concentrations in the gut. It's a little more complicated than just simply having a handheld breathalyzer with a smartphone app, but there are other ways to do this. But the paradigm remains true. We need to have that if we are going to really elevate uh, our approach to this condition from where it used to be 20, 30 years ago. And I will say in my practice, and I think it's that's true for a lot of practitioners, and this is a highly prevalent condition. Right. Um, and one of the reasons is becoming increasingly prevalent in the last uh, couple of decades has been the widespread use of PPIs, which are potent suppressors of gastric acid. And gastric acid is one of the natural barriers that the body has to protect against overgrowth of bacteria because it kills the bacteria. But once you suppress it, that barrier is gone, and now you give the bacteria a chance to colonize. It's not the only cause of SIBO. There are other causes, but it is a major contributing factor to the increasing prevalence of SIBO, in my opinion. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I'd be happy yeah. to. Yeah. No, that's that's very interesting. Um, in terms of the PPI treatment, um, do you, you know, for someone who has GERD or even someone who has a diagnosed functional dyspepsia, what what are you using instead of a PPI to avoid the, um, you know, the incident of SIBO potentially? Are you using an H2 blocker instead? Yeah. I So this is, again, why it's it's kind of becomes important to have an objective test that establishes right. SIBO because then you can, with greater confidence, make those kinds of recommendations because a lot of these patients have heartburn that right. has required the use of chronic PPIs. And so it's a big change for them. Although 
increasingly patients are being worried about some of the other side effects of PPIs as well, but it's a big change for them. And you have to wean them off the PPI and substitute other medications. I, as you said, I often use H2 blockers. And I would say that in more than half of my patients, once they understand the rationale for it, they're quite prepared to do that. And they don't do too badly. Now, of course, if you have conditions such as very severe inflammation, if esophagus or Barrett's, right, Barrett's then yeah. you're in a dilemma as to what. Right. But again, having the ability to at libitum test whether your bacteria is back or not gives the physician and the patient some better control over their symptoms and how to treat it. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, as we get um, more and more studies showing the benefit of data to drive treatment choices for IBS and some of the other DGBIs. I think it's really helping to increase patients' confidence in the recommended treatments because for so long, it was really just, you know, physicians call it treating empirically and patients just call it throwing something against the wall and hoping that it sticks, you know? Um, and, and that was really driving a lot of frustration for patients going, how do you know it's going to work? How do you know that this is, you know, going to be beneficial and, and the side effects aren't going to be cumbersome. Um, I, I just, I, I love data driven decision-making. And so I really, um, appreciate your explanation of how this can really, um, help physicians to better pinpoint what they're actually needing to treat. Um, so I I think, yeah, go ahead. No, please finish. No, I, I just think this is going to be very interesting as the data continues to evolve. Um, and, and hopefully we continue to see the benefits of, of testing such as, as the food marble, um, breath testing, um, and, and like you mentioned, the, the accessibility, the convenience of it for patients to be able to do it within their home and, and have multiple data points to look at. I think all of that it shows a lot of benefit to the overall management of the patient. Yeah. And if I may add to that, Joanna, uh, another insidious and you know, often overlooked factor is the lack of an objective test. Hmm. Uh, the lack of at least a widely available objective test has relegated SIBO to sort of a gray area for a lot of primary care physicians because they don't know how, if they don't have a diagnostic test for it that they can access, then they won't even look for it. And when they don't look for it, they don't think about it. Exactly. When you don't think about it, then you're sending every patient to a gastroenterologist <laughs> yeah. who may or may not treat them empirically or, or may get a breath test. But these symptoms are relatively nonspecific, and it is so easy for a primary care physician to order a test if it was widely available and at least mm-hmm. make that initial diagnosis and then decision about treatment, which they can readily make, right? Primary right. care physicians treat urinary tract infections, bronchitis, other uh, infections all the time, but they sure. have tools that they can use. Sure. And in the with the lack of a tool, they just sort of black it out of their mind. It's, yeah. You know, this is not, this is requires some kind of uh, mysterious clinical expertise that I Right, don't have. right. Yeah. yeah. I find that primary care struggles to think 
about syndromes, right? They're, they're very good at treating acute infections or acute injuries, but syndromic um, symptoms that are, you know, not showing up on a test are, are really. Well, that is correct. But I, I think this, this, I think SIBO as opposed to IBS, for instance, is True. not a syndrome. It's, it's, True. A, it's, a, it's right. a real, uh, it's a well-defined disease. Now we don't have, like I said, we don't have all the accessible tests to define it, but right. if you do, it is a defined entity in terms of what causes it and how to treat it. I think that uh, general practitioners are very comfortable treating reflux disease empirically mm -hmm. um, because now it's established, yes, heartburn, right. trial of, of something, but that's because there is a, there are tests and if the patient doesn't respond, they can send them for endoscopy. But with SIBO, most general practitioners don't even think about it because oh, there's no tool that they can access. Right. Yeah, I think another challenge as well, like when it comes to, you know, for a lot of clinicians, you know, they're not necessarily too keen to prescribe Rifaxman if, if they know it's not going to be covered by people's insurances. Hmm. I mean, it's it's an expensive drug and you, you know it's not broadly covered. Yeah, but there there are ways around that that people have adopted. And I think it's it's okay. We don't want to talk about that just now, but I will say that, you know, um the biggest thing is they just don't know enough about it because it's, they've not incorporated that into their approach. Right. And they haven't incorporated it because there is no tool that they can access readily. So that's that's one issue I think that tools like this will really potentially help because we don't want everybody to necessarily be referred to a gastroenterologist. Absolutely. So yeah. many patients, uh, so many patients in in general practice are on a PPI, and a certain percentage of them have SIBO based on that PPI use, mm -hmm. and that's something that the primary care physician can address because usually it's the primary care physician that's prescribing the PPI. Yes. So it's just, it becomes part of the algorithm of care. If you somebody's on a PPI for a long-term and they're complaining of these kinds of symptoms, a bell should go off. Is this SIBO? All right, let's get a test and let's treat it. And that's, I think, hopefully one of the gaps that uh, we will cover. The, so one last thing I wanted to say about um, this kind of a approach is, so the lactulose challenge is flawed, as, as we said, mm -hmm. but we don't know whether monitoring an individual patient's response to the meals they're eating can actually improve the probability of finding a positive diagnosis. And that's one of the questions that we are asking in our research study. And there is some preliminary evidence to say that uh, your hydrogen breath concentrations after a meal that you eat at home, whatever meal you're eating, correlates better with the response to antibiotics um, and perhaps better than uh, a lactulose challenge. So those are research still, you know, we still have small numbers. We still need to establish that. So please don't 
take it home yet with you. But those are the kinds of, you know, uh, areas that we want to explore. And we do think that will benefit patients if we are proven right. I want to um, talk a little bit about the use of breath testing um, for possible prediction of response to the low FODMAP diet, because there's, there's, you know, the low FODMAP diet's been around for a while, as we all know, but in primary care, it's really prescribed for any and all GI distress and no education or support is, is given typically to patients. They're typically given a recommendation to try it or a photocopied brochure about it and told to good luck. This'll, this'll probably help. Um, and for a lot of patients, they don't implement it correctly. Uh, they may over restrict or stay on the restriction um, component longer than necessary. The reintroduction phase, if they do it, is usually not done appropriately. Um, so either they end up on an over restriction diet that's not benefiting them whatsoever, or um, they just stay on on it long term. And we know that the low FODMAP diet is not meant to be a lifelong diet. So I, I really think that your um, data looking uh, at dietary therapies um, with breast testing is very, very interesting. Um, Angus, can you, can you maybe just summarize that data mm -hmm. for us? Yeah. So, you know, typically we have people, um, you know, from a, from a consumer perspective where somebody has gotten a device and, and as well, we have some clinicians who were, who were, who were taking this approach, but people are recording their meals in the app and, and, and the app has a, a food composition database. So you can okay. see, uh, so we know how much FODMAPs are in, in each of the different foods that have been recorded. And you're also taking breath tests. So breath tests between meals. So after, after a meal, they're taking breath tests. Um, and, you know, we suggest each hour. So, so, you know, over the day to say if somebody's having three meals, it might be nine, 10 breath tests. And that gives you a really good picture over the day of how people are responding to food. And you especially see it um, in terms of, so that the newest device we have, it's measuring hydrogen and methane on the breath. But when it comes to food, you see, you particularly see it with hydrogen because hydrogen is very responsive to the food that, that you eat. Methane's, you know, tends to vary a bit more kind of gradually. But um, where where if you see an increase in the breath readings after a meal, that's an interesting signal to somebody that this what you've eaten might be problematic. Because why why breath testing adds to to, to um, adds value in that context is you you may experience symptoms several like a number of hours later, like it, like maybe in the evening time or the afternoon, you're feeling well. But what you wait for breakfast might be contributing to your symptoms. And, and so, so there, there was, you know, there might have been significant, um, you know, gas generation in the gut, but maybe it wasn't enough to trigger symptoms. So you didn't reach a symptom threshold. So, so this is something that, you know, has been explored somewhat in the literature, but where for people with, with the low FODMAP diet, they need to be conscious of things like how the FODMAP stack over the day. And so, you know, it's not a case of like an allergy to a certain food, but it's where you know, you're going to have a certain rate of fermentation with a particular food. And, and, and so sustained over the day, a combination of what you eat may, may trigger symptoms. But if you're able to, 
just limit certain foods uh, and it doesn't need to be eliminate certain foods mm -hmm. but in the personalization phase of the low yeah. fat diet if you can kind of understand that and make small adjustments in a way that's sustainable and healthy you can still have that broad um a, a, you know a broad um, nutritional intake um but you're you're no longer symptomatic so that's kind of that's where we're trying to come at the problem yeah if i think I mean, that's oh go ahead go ahead yeah, if I may add to that, so just to be clear, FODMAP is not a cure. Yes. Low, low FODMAP diet is not a cure. It is a right. palliative treatment. And yes, uh, you want to take it to the extreme, stop eating, everything will try to get better, except, of course, you're not going to survive very long. <laughs> so the question is, how, how, does, how do FODMAPs cause symptoms, right? FODMAPs generally are not the cause of the pain and the distension they are what we call aggravating factors. So you do not, it, just because FODMAPs worsen your symptoms doesn't mean that you are necessarily not digesting the FODMAPs properly. It means FODMAPs in everybody will produce a certain amount of fermentation. That's right. just the nature of the food. And if you have a sensitized nervous system, sensitized gut, then uh, any little distension from gas will make your symptoms worse. Now, what a tool like this allows us to do is say, you don't have any real excessive gas production after a FODMAP diet, right? That means your baseline level of sensitivity is very, very high. And it doesn't matter what mm -hmm. additional triggers you put on because it's just already very high. So you can triage a patient into one bucket. On the other hand, there are patients who have dramatic responses to a low FODMAP diet. Right. And you know that their baseline sensitivity is relatively low, although they're still sensitive more than normal people. But it's really the distension, additional distension and gas from the gas that's being produced is the cause of their symptoms. And so that puts them in a separate bucket. And that bucket then becomes problematic to handle in the long term how long can they stay on a broad low FODMAP diet without either becoming nutritionally impaired or saying to heck with us, I can't enjoy anything. Right. Anymore. You know, right. food is one of the things that brings us all joy. So that's where you start narrowing down. Okay. Is there one particular or two particular kinds of ingredients that I have to avoid? And I think, a significant number of patients will be able to find that if we have the right tool. Now, I'm not suggesting we know that food marble or air is the right tool, but I'm saying if we had the right tool, we would find that a significant number of patients, if not the majority, would be able to find the, you know, the the uh, inciting food ingredient. And then, unfortunately, there'll be another bucket where people are going to not be able to find one or two foods, and they're going to have significant broad-based problems with FODMAPs. And that has to that requires further research on how to actually take care of the underlying sensitivity. So these are all tools for us to do a better job in understanding the pathogenesis of what causes the symptoms, what is the nature of the interaction between the food and their personal gut and the microbes that are contained in their personal gut. And how does this lead to more specific and individualized, what we call personalized. Yeah, personalized. Treatment. 
Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you, Dr. Patrick, I'm going to ask you, um, a question that I don't know, I've just been dying to ask you. Um, so it may be a little bit controversial for some people listening, but in your opinion, how do you think, what is the best form of treatment to treat the hypersensitivity of the gut in these patients? Do you, are you looking at neuromodulation to regulate that? How are you, what's, what's your approach? I think it's a multifactorial approach. And as I've said, there, there is a baseline. If, there, if you feel there's a baseline problem with hypersensitivity, that means mm. the nerves in the gut are sensitized. They're sending noise to the brain. Right. And that noise is being interpreted as pain, discomfort, nausea, whatever you want to call it. And you want to avoid things that make it worse. You know, certain kinds of foods, other triggers, uh, certainly stressful conditions. But in a lot of patients, you've got to address that underlying hypersensitivity as well. And the best way, at least I know of, to deal with that is using neuromodulators. Now, the difference between my practice and that of a typical GI practice is I have become familiar with, you know, three dozen neuromodulators. Right. And I use them, you know, I mix and match and I, and I mm -hmm. make sure I get it right. Right. Um, as opposed to just one or two approaches. And then the other thing you have to make sure is patients understand that, you know, a lot of these patients come to me and have been told it's all in their head and they're already stigmatized by that fact and being dismissed. Right. So when you talk about neuromodulators, a lot of which are used for, uh, you know, depression or anxiety, although we use a, a bunch of them that are not, we use, you know, membrane stabilizers, we use anticonvulsants and so on, mm. but they're a little wary of going on those drugs because sure. you think it reinforces that concept. So you have to spend a lot of time explaining that to them and, and you know, giving them a full understanding of the rationale of what you do. Yeah. Now, in addition to that, of course, there are methods to help you cope with this, right? And there are methods to help you cope with this. There's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's hypnosis. There are a lot of tools that you can use to help deal with the anxiety and the, the, the discomfort that comes from anticipation yeah. of a meal, right? So if, so if you, clearly all these symptoms are related to eating in some way, right? Sure. Now, if uh, I took a, uh, some kind of abrasive material a pumice, for instance, and rub your skin every day with it. After a few weeks, mm -hmm. you yeah. see that pumice, you're going to react adversely. And you're going to say, no, I don't want to come near it. Right? The same thing happens with food. Food causes them symptoms. They make them feel yucky. They make them feel sick. It's not primarily a psychological problem. You know, I don't I don't know, you know, people talk about ARFID and all. I think these are, yeah. some of these are conditioned reflexes, but some of them are absolutely understandable defensive reflexes. You don't want to do this if you know it's going to make you sick. You're going to avoid it. Yes. It doesn't mean that you have an eating disorder, but that gets confused in the patient's minds because 
the messages they get, it's, it's an eating disorder. It's horrific. Mm-hmm. It's something like mm-hmm. that. And, you know, if only you could figure out how to overcome your aversion to food, everything would be okay. So it requires, you know, you can't just give neuromodulators in isolation. Sure. You have to help patients understand what the underlying problem is to the best of our knowledge today. Right. And our knowledge will continue to evolve as long as we continue to do research into what causes syndromes such as IBS. And it is evolving. I think it's becoming a very nuanced uh, state of knowledge now that we are understanding there are subtypes of this syndrome that have truly organic disease. And, you know, we need to do more research, but I think we're headed in that direction and that should be our ultimate goal. So that was my next question to both of you. Where do you think the, the, what do you think the future is in terms of new diagnostic testing that's going to then lead hopefully to better targeted treatments, more personalized treatments, um, say in the next 10 to 15 years, what do you see on the horizon? In terms of diagnostic tests? Correct. Um, so looking, you know, do you think we're going to find some viable biomarkers for IBS? Uh, I think what we're going to do, what, what we are going to find is there are subsets of the syndrome and we're going to find some real biomarkers for some subsets. And then we're going to stop calling them IBS. Mm. Yes. We're going to call them whatever you want you know, whatever we want to do, mast cell mediated disease, Mm -hmm. IgA mediated disease, some other autoimmune phenomenon or some genetic issue. We're going to find that. Yeah. And, and in the rest, we'll continue to do research to find something is causing this. It's not all in the mind. It's not in the mind to begin with. Right. You know, we've taken, and this is now being corroborated in some ways by human uh, data. If you take neonatal mice or rats and you irritate their colon or their stomach very transiently with very mild irritation, acetic vinegar, hmm. and you know, not, no damage, real, no real damage is done. You let them grow up. When they become adults, they're anxious and depressed. And when you hmm. examine their brains, they have the same changes in their brain, structural and molecular changes in their brain that you see depression and anxiety. So the gut wow. can drive this and some of it is driven by the vagus nerve. Right. So we've got to f- figure out what is that, what we call plasticity in the nervous system that happens with gut irritation. And once we understand that better, then we can chart a path to treating it, at least treating it better, if not getting rid of it altogether. Yeah. Interesting. Angus, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in where the diagnostic tests, you know, I think it's very important for diagnostic testing where it's, it's it's you know, there's one thing of diagnosing an issue, but if there's, if there's no nothing sort of actionable that follows from that, you know, it's, it's, it's not as useful. So I think where, like I think for diagnostic testing, it has to, like you know testing needs to move towards the home like you know we of course healthcare in general needs to move towards the home um i think where something can can move from diagnosis to 
like this this concept we're talking about trying to predict who's going to respond to what types of treatments so so it has to kind of drive clinical decision making and i think then the next stage is there has to be a simple way to monitor what's happening so for for a patient you're you know it's less about oh well i'll just try all these different things you know you you you, from the best of my abilities based off a limited consultation with the patient being able to gather more data being able to personalize the treatment and you know there might be a couple of stages to it but then being able to monitor what's happening and so instead of people being in this sort of um continuous cycle of of trying different things and getting disheartened and not really getting anywhere and ultimately probably being quite depressed about it, being able to get to a resolution. Like even when we talk about the, the, the low FODMAP diet, you know, it's such a, such a great advance on what was there previously. And that really helped uh, my wife when using that with, uh, with early prototypes of the device, but it has to move to the next stage of, okay, so we've been able to identify which of these sort of fermentable carbohydrates you respond to given your gut microbiome. Uh, so you get, you know, what will produce lots of these gases and, and, and have all these effects for you. But then what's the next stage? Because if you're going to cut out what is a, in, a, in effect food for the gut microbiome, things that are fermented, fermentation is you're feeding the gut microbiome. You, you want to find alternatives so that your gut microbiome is still fed in, 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 and is still nourished by whether that be prebiotic supplements or, you know, um, or, or whether that be other types of food. So it's sort of like, you know, there's a personalization phase to the low format diet, but a big part of that needs to be about identifying uh, foods or, or other supplements that can really make you, make you whole in terms of, in terms of your gut microbiome, which ultimately is probably what's mediating the, the, your condition. Right. Well, as we wrap up, um, Dr. Pedrica, any clinical pearls you'd like to leave with our audience, both patients and providers? I think uh, the most important message is you're not alone. Uh, in the vast majority of patients, your symptoms can be brought under control and you have the prospect of having a very good quality of life. It may take a long time, but it will happen. And um, further research is needed, but it's already happening. And I think um, there's a lot of hope. I completely agree. And Angus, last words for patients or providers? Yeah, I I just hope that, you know, what we're doing can be beneficial to people. And we just love to get feedback from anyone who does, who does use our, the technology we've provided. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the future is bright because, you know, we're starting to even ourselves learn so much and, and you can see from, from, um, all of the research that's coming out that the understanding of the gut and the understanding of the pathophysiology of IBS and all of these conditions is getting so much better. So it is a very, you know, it's a, it's a time to feel positive about IBS and SIBO and some of these conditions. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely, we've come a long way 
um, we have a we have a ways to go, but there's a lot of hope uh, for the future of of treating these conditions. So. With that, we will wrap for this month's episode. Dr. Pajrika, Inga Short, thank you so much to both of you for joining us on this episode. And um, Inga will be joining us tomorrow on June 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, which will be a very late night for him, um, for our live Twitter chat where we will be discussing this a little bit further. So bring your questions and be online ready to chat with him for um, at seven o'clock Eastern for June's session. Until next time, everyone, take good care. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Pajarika, do you have a last word? No, I wanted to thank you for having me. Uh, It's been a pleasure. I didn't know there was going to be an Angus doubleheader, but... (laughs) <laughs> good, luck, good luck for that <laughs> yeah we we uh we go all in on these sessions right. so so thanks so much for joining no, us no, thank, again. And thank, and thank you for um your efforts to educate our patients and and all that the rome foundation is doing it's great thank you appreciate that very much bye until bye. next time everyone take good care talk to you soon bye-bye now <laughs> Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.